Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God, our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for this morning's meditation comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 15, these verses. For I declare to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So far the reading of God's word. Jesus was just a great moral teacher and certainly a good man, but he was definitely not the son of God. Have you ever heard anyone say that? I have. But when you read what Jesus had to say about himself, you quickly discover that there is a problem with calling Jesus a good moral teacher because Jesus made some pretty outrageous claims. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be equal to God. He claimed to have power to forgive your sins, my sins, the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future. He claimed that someday he would actually come back and judge both the living and the dead. He claimed that he had power over death. So here's the problem, friends. A man who is merely a man and makes such claims about himself cannot be considered a good moral teacher. A man who falsely claims to be God is either a liar or a lunatic, but you cannot call him a great moral teacher. Anybody here ever read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, besides me and the little guy in the front? Okay. Well, C.S. Lewis makes this very same argument. In fact, Lewis said, you can call Jesus a fool, you can call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, when a person decides that they're going to believe in Jesus, you only have about three uh, possibilities. Either Jesus was an out-and-out liar, or he was a lunatic, or he actually was the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It's only one of those three. Those are your only options that you can choose from. Now, I would guess that you probably know which one I believe in. I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is Lord of all. But I do not believe those things simply because I am a preacher. I am a preacher because I simply believe those things. Big difference. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. And when you look at the evidence, you can reach no other verdict. And there are a number of reasons why I believe in Jesus. And today, this morning, on Easter, I want to just share three reasons why I believe in Jesus and why I think you should consider so yourself. The first one is this. I believe in Jesus because he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. See, for centuries before Jesus ever came on this planet, the writers of the Old Testament predicted the coming of this Messiah. They predicted specific things about his life, such as where he would be born and where his ancestors would be. And they also talked about how he would die. 
They predicted certain events that would take place, how he would react in certain situations, and how people would react to him. Indeed, there are 60, that's six zero major Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled every last single one of them. But a skeptical mind might say, yeah, but what if Jesus deliberately staged events in his life to appear to be prophetic fulfillments? I mean, for example, the prophecy that says that the Messiah will ride triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. Or what about the prophecy that says that the Messiah will come from Capernaum? I mean, he could have intentionally moved to Capernaum. Uh, when he began his ministry, in fact, if he was crazy enough, he might have actually engineered his own crucifixion just to fulfill that prophecy. Now, I got to tell you, a few of those prophecies could have been fulfilled intentionally, but not many. For example, the prophecy that says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem or that he would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, or that he would be a descendant from the line of King David, or the prophecy that said that men would gamble for his clothes after he died. I mean, how could he have faked all of those prophecies and still perform miracles surrounded by all those skeptics? But you know that a skeptic might actually say, yeah, but what if the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, fabricated or made up those events to make it look like Jesus was the Messiah. How about that? Well, i got to tell you, if Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John had become millionaires off of royalties for writing the Gospels, then maybe you could suspect something like that. But that isn't what happened. They did not become celebrities. They actually became wanted men. I mean, Matthew was axed to death in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged to his death in Alexandria. Luke was hanged from an olive tree in Greece. And John, the only one to die of natural causes, was first thrown into a pot of boiling olive oil and then exiled for the rest of his life on the Isle of Patmos. So I kind of find it really difficult to believe that these guys would actually have embellished the truth to the extent that it would actually lead to their death. But you know, still a skeptical mind might say, yeah, but what if it just happened to be an honest coincidence? I mean, maybe there are other people throughout history whose lives have also been a coincidental fulfillment of prophecy. Isn't that possible? Well, the answer is uh, no. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you why, because there's a couple of mathematicians. Mathematician uh, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book that was called Science Speaks. And Stoner lists 12 different cla- enlisted 12 different classes of over 600 college students to help him calculate the probability of one man fulfilling just eight of these 60 prophecies in his lifetime. For example, they took the prophecy that said Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is not Dallas-Fort Worth. It's a tiny little village, somewhere between about 500 to maybe 1,000 people tops. So Stoner and his students determined the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah, when that prediction was made, all the way up to the present time. Then they divided it by the population of the earth during that entire period. They concluded that the chances of one man being born in Bethlehem was 1 in 2.8 times 10 to the fifth power. 
Now, that's one in 300,000. Chances are pretty slim. Well, that wasn't enough for them. The students worked their way through eight distinct prophecies, weighing all of the factors, examining various circumstances, which might indicate people somehow conspired together to fulfill a particular prophecy. They made estimates that were so conservative so that all of these six or eight hundred students could actually agree on them, even the most skeptical of these students. And the conclusion was this, that the mathematical chance of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies is one in 100 million billion. Now, if you want to try that out, you take a pencil and write one and follow it by 17 zeros. So, friends, it's impossible to think that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by mere coincidence. It's impossible to think that he could have manipulated all of those events. And it's impossible to think that the gospel writers would make all this stuff up because each of them suffered greatly for what they believed in and had written. So, I believe in Jesus because he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. How about you? Well, if that's not enough proof, I'm going to tell you, I believe in Jesus because he was raised from the dead. Quite honestly, if he was not raised from the dead, I'd still be in bed in North Richland Hills. I would have sent a note ahead and said, Quentin, I understand Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. Lock the doors. Don't bother to let the people in to come and celebrate some foolish tradition. See, when we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't mean in some sort of a spiritual sense. We don't mean in some metaphysical or allegorical sense. We mean it in the absolute literal sense. His human body was dead. Literally, completely lifeless. His heart stopped beating. The blood in his veins stopped flowing. He stopped breathing. He was dead as dead can be. But then guess what? After three lifeless days, his body began to stir. His heart began to start beating. His lungs began to fill with air. His eyes opened and he was alive. And that's what the Bible teaches and that's what Christ's followers have been believing and teaching for the last 2,000 plus years. But then the skeptic might actually say, but what if Jesus really didn't die on that cross? See, that theory came up again and again throughout history that Jesus didn't really die. He just passed out on the cross. I mean, the Romans thought he was dead. They allowed him to be buried. But then in the coolness of that tomb, Jesus somehow regained consciousness after fainting on the cross. And he got up and he actually pushed that heavy stone that took, oh, five or six or seven Roman soldiers to cover the thing. And he claimed to his followers that he was alive again. That's called the swoon theory, by the way. It's kind of difficult to take that very seriously for a number of reasons. One of which, can you picture Jesus hobbling on pierced feet, weak from the loss of blood, still bruised and bloody from the beatings he'd taken the three days before, still having this strength to push away a stone, still in a desperate need for medical attention? I mean, it it is impossible to think that he could possibly convince the world that he had, in fact, conquered death. But you know, a skeptic might still say, Yeah, but what if the resurrection story, or the resurrection stories, are really just legends that kind of developed after the death of Christ? Well, maybe there was kind of a gradual development over the years. I mean, first of all, he was a great teacher. 
who died a tragic death. And then maybe the legend would grow that he actually had risen from the dead. Then the legend could have grown and said that he actually claimed to be God and that the gospel writers put words in his mouth making claims. And the legend grew and grew and grew until it finally kind of spun out of control. Well, I got to tell you, there is absolutely no question that over a course of time, a lot of fairy tales develop about historical figures. For example, do you ever hear St. George? You probably always connect him with St. George and the dragon. Well, St. George was an actual real person, but the legend that St. George actually killed a dragon, if there actually is such a thing as a fire-breathing dragon, occurred centuries after he died. It's the same with Alexander the Great, the young man who conquered the entire known world by the time he was 30. I mean, there are many legends, in fact, you call them tall tales about him, but they are not included in the first two bibliographies of his life, which were written shortly after he died. In the case of Jesus, his followers affirmed from the very beginning that he had died and that he had risen from the dead. I don't know if you know what the very first book in the New Testament written was. You probably thought it was Matthew, because that's where we start. Actually, the first one written chronologically would be 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, written about 19 years or so after Jesus died, rose again, Paul affirms that Jesus had actually been risen from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, which Paul wrote just a few years later, he actually recites a creed that had been taught amongst the Christian church, and in this ancient creed, it was common for believers to memorize it and recite it, brief statements of what they believe. Now, I'm going to read this creed to you. It comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul reminded them, he said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he went on to say he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers all at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. See, Christianity has always taught that Jesus, who suffered and died and was buried, did in fact appear again. He raised physically from the dead. It was not some idea that somehow grew over a period of time. I mean, Christians say that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's still people alive who could actually testify to that. But I will be honest and tell you that there were legends about Jesus that did develop over time. One of them actually had him resurrecting a dead bird when he was a young boy. Another one said that he actually corrected some uh, faulty cuts that his father, the carpenter, made uh, in, the, in the cabinet shop. I mean, there were legends about the resurrection that said that when Jesus came popping out of the tomb, uh, the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the Roman soldiers were standing there watching it and thinking, oh man, that's way cool. Now, when these legends popped up, church leaders disputed them. From the very beginning, the followers of Jesus preached the resurrection. But again, you might run into a skeptic who says, yeah, but what if it wasn't really a, maybe it's just a spiritual resurrection. Now, I've read a few liberal scholars in my time who have come to this very conclusion. I'm going to read you one. I, this is the kind of stuff that really makes me mad. I, I wish I could go over and wrap this guy a good one. Uh, but his name is John Shelby Spong. He's not, an El, he's not a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod guy. He happens to be an Episcopalian bishop. So he's pretty high up in the Episcopalian church, okay? 
He wrote a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. Now listen to what he wrote. Quote, the miracles of physical resuscitation, angels who roll stones away from tombs, and the bodies that appear out of nothing and disappear into thin air must be dismissed for the developed legends that they are. Imagine that, an Episcopalian bishop saying, all this stuff is just so much nonsense. You know, the more you consider this view, I've got to be honest with you, the dumber it sounds. I mean, either you can believe the eyewitness testimony or you can't. I mean, it's crazy to, to, to conclude that the disciples didn't see what they thought they saw or that after the death of Jesus they had some sort of a, you know, woo, existential experience or something that it kind of, uh, they saw some sort of a transcendent floating Christ and so they made up a whole bunch of stories about actually seeing him. That, that, I'll be honest with you, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you've got to be dumber than a bag of hammers to believe that one. See, the disciples believed that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. That's why the empty tomb is so significant. Now, I believe that, that if Jesus had been raised spiritually rather than physically resurrected, he would have made that distinction very clear to his followers, and the writers of the Gospels would have also made that very clear to us, but the apostles clearly believed in a physical resurrection. Listen to what Luke wrote. And Luke was a, phys- a physician, by the way. He said, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to this fact. So again, I believe in Jesus because of the Old Testament prophecies, but I believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be because he was raised from the dead. He conquered death. I really wish we had time, all kinds of time this morning just to cover all of the evidence that supports that fact because there have been volumes written on it. But there is a third reason I believe, and I believe in Jesus because of the radical transformation of his disciples. See, when Jesus died, he literally died alone. Nearly all of his disciples ran away. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. All of them, it seems, other than John, deserted him. They were all cowards, but, I mean, who could actually blame them? I mean, they were, I'm sure that they were scared to death that they would be the next ones to die for what had seemingly become a lost cause. But if you read your scriptures, what happens? In the following weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus, their cowardice disappeared. The disciples became bold. They began courageously speaking in the name of Jesus in public places. Signs and wonders began to follow them wherever they went. And suddenly this group of men, who once were almost as scared of, afraid of their own shadows, could not be intimidated by anyone. They absolutely, positively could not be stopped. You could beat those guys and they would still preach. You could imprison those guys and they would still preach. You could torture them and, they, and still they would preach. And the only way that they could stop these guys to shut them up was to kill them. And that's exactly what they did. Now, earlier I mentioned what happened to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How about the other ones? Philip was thrown in jail, scourged and crucified in 54 A.D. Matthias was stoned to death and then beheaded in Jerusalem. 
Andrew was crucified in Odessa. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome during the persecutions of Nero. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified in India. Simon the Zealot was crucified in 74 AD. Thomas was killed by a thrust of the sword ministering to people in India. I'd ask you, what drove these guys to be willing to die for the name of Jesus? I mean, could it be that they got together in the upper room and drank a little extra communion wine and decided to uh, make up some sort of a myth about the resurrection of Jesus and made an oath to each other and said, hey, guys, let's keep the gag going as long as we can? Uh, I think not. And though many people have died throughout history for many foolish reasons, you cannot begin to even convince me that these men would die for what they knew was an absolute lie. See, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, the disciples would have known it. They would have known the reports that of the resurrection of Christ was false. That would mean the disciples all died, not for a misguided belief, but for something they all knew to be a lie. Now, either they saw the resurrected Jesus or they didn't. And if they didn't, they lied about seeing him a lie that they knew would almost certainly result in their death. But something happened to these disciples to change their character after watching all of this. And they claimed that it was an encounter with the resurrected living Christ. And I believe them. There is absolutely no other way to account for the radical transformation in their lives. Now, there's a little P.S. to this story, and it's this, that Jesus is still radically transforming people. You all know that I just spent a week in prison, largest maximum security prison in America. Average sense of these guys, 88 years, these are some really tough people. But they are some of the most amazingly changed people you will ever see. I'm privileged to minister to people where today the count is probably well over 2,000 born-again believers. People who at one time weren't obeying the rules. People at one time who lived the way they wanted to, but now today live for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to glorify Jesus Christ. They will come up to me and they'll say, Doc, remind the people when you're out there that we feel freer inside the walls of this prison than many people who are still locked up in their ignorance, not knowing who Jesus is. Transforming people. That's what the resurrected Jesus does. I've experienced it. I mean, if I look back at my life many years ago and I see who I used to be and what I used to do, And I look at myself today, I see that there's been a change. And the only thing I can attribute that to is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Suffering, dead, buried, but still alive. So those are three rather objective reasons why a person can rationally believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I mean, there's evidence to support that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. There is evidence to support that he was physically raised from the dead. And from a purely academic perspective, a person could objectively determine that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. And therefore, he must be the son of God. But if I would end the sermon right there, I would be doing you an injustice. 
If I were to leave it at that, however, it would be to miss out on the best thing that could happen to you. See, just intellectually recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God is only the very first step in becoming an honest-to-goodness Christ follower. You've got to take a step further. What you know in your head, you act on in your heart. It's what we sometimes call giving your life to Jesus. Well, we know that Luther says, you know, that we cannot come to Jesus Christ our Lord or come to him, but he has called us by the Holy Spirit. But there comes a time when we hear about Jesus, when the Spirit speaks to us, we give our lives to Jesus. Paul said to the Romans in chapter 10, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this Easter, friends, I'm saying you can know Jesus beyond an academic sense. You can know him personally. You can experience his presence in your life day after day after day. Growing up in Seward, Nebraska, with my grandfather being the janitor at the church, the school, and the parish hall. Many of you know my grandparents raised me. I spent a lot of time in church, in old St. John's Church, downtown Seward, Nebraska, a lot of beautiful stained glass windows, and I used to sit there and stare at those stained glass windows. And the one that always kind of got to me was the one of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And I remember one day that my grandpa stopped by. He says, what are you looking at? So I'm looking at this door, and I see Jesus standing there knocking at the door, and I'm wondering why on earth nobody answers. You ever seen that painting? You ever seen that picture? Do you know there's no doorknob on the outside of that door? It needs to be opened from the inside. Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and what? Opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Today might very well be the first day that you recognize that. Christ the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.